Welcome to Commune. This is Jeff Krasnow. Our mission is to spread the ideas and practices of the world's greatest teachers. We do that through online courses, a weekly newsletter, and this podcast. On the show, I excavate perennial spiritual questions like what is consciousness? What is the nature of reality? How do we live with purpose? Reality is infinite. We experience a narrow bandwidth of it unless we transcend our senses through meditation. We delve into practices and modalities that can heal trauma and help us thrive. Mastering the art and the science of forgiveness is necessary to move through life. A miracle is a shift in perception from fear to love. We explore the spiritual traditions that help us acknowledge that we are all connected by a power greater than us. We are all indeed individuals, yet we need to find collective and communal solutions. We build a sturdy bridge between personal wellness and societal well-being. It's only when you get people who are pursuing their dreams, living their truth, and feeling good that we can actually move the needle of society forward. To learn about our courses, our community, and everything we do, visit us at onecommune.com. Welcome to the Commune Podcast. My name is Jeff Krasnow. My guest on the show today is Dr. Andrew Huberman. Andrew is a neuroscientist and tenured professor in the Department of Neurobiology at the Stanford University School of Medicine. The work from his Huberman Laboratory at Stanford on brain development, learning, and neuroplasticity has been extensively published in many top highly regarded journals, including Nature, Science, Cell, and many others. Now, many of you are undoubtedly familiar with Andrew through his massively popular podcast, The Huberman Lab. He is famous for pairing explanations of physiological mechanism with specific protocols such that people can not only have a better understanding of medical science, but can also have greater agency over their own health. Now, this episode was recorded September 22nd, 2022, as a live Zoom that had over 10,000 registrants. The topic was objective measures of health and performance and how to improve. In our conversation, Andrew and I examined tools and techniques for understanding and assessing key markers for health and we discuss what protocols we can specifically adopt to optimize our health in relation to these metrics. We identify daily, annual, or biannual, and once-in-a-lifetime tests and metrics that provide a dashboard into our health, including sleep markers, grip strength, blood panels, DNA testing, and glucose monitoring, among others. Now, while we'll be discussing various praxis in this conversation, please always consult with your physician before adopting any significant changes in behavior. Now, if you're interested in functional and integrative medicine-based programs with doctors like Mark Hyman, Mary Pardee, Zach Bush, Roger Schwelt, and others on topics such as gut health, sleep, immunity, hormone balancing, Ayurveda, and nutrition, well, you can sign up for 14 days of free all-access to Commune's entire course library, including more than 100 courses on health, personal growth, and social 
impact, just go to onecommune.com slash trial. And please support by subscribing to this podcast and leaving us a review on your favorite podcatcher. My mom is old school and actually prints out the reviews and puts them on her fridge. So make her proud. Okay, without further delay, I present to you, Dr. Andrew Huberman. I welcome Andrew Huberman. Great to be with you. Great to be here. Thanks so much. And thanks everyone who's taken the time out of your schedules to, to join us. Um, going to do our best to make this worth your while. And, um, uh, I can assure you by the end of the hour, you'll come away with um, a bunch of actionable items uh, should you choose to do them. And um, again, make sure it's okay with your physician, et cetera. But um, yeah, I think in the, over the next hour, we're going to get into a lot of different topics related to sleep and hormone health and cognitive health and physical health. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Yeah. I mean, there's only so much we'll be able to cover in the next 50 minutes or so. So I just encourage everyone that's interested in going deeper on any of these verticals that we uh, we discussed, please uh, go to the Huberman Lab podcast. I'll be referring to various episodes throughout um, throughout the conversation where you can actually go into a, a deep dive. So maybe we could start with some daily metrics um, that you look at. What are, what are some of the essentials of quotidian markets that one can and, and should be looking at? Yeah, that's a great question. And, and I realize that we're mainly talking about objective measures, but I think it's worthwhile to also consider subjective measures in parallel to that. Because mm. um, if one is going to track subjective measures or objective measures, it's clear that it's always better to track both and and if for no other reason than to learn how one informs the other. So for instance, just to give a really uh, concrete example, if you're somebody who uses sleep tracking um, and you get a great sleep score, uh, you would be wise to compare to that to how rested you feel, right? Um, or let's use an even simpler example. Um, some people will look in the mirror and decide that they're... Um, their the aesthetics of their body are is going in a particular direction that they like or don't like or is stable but then they'll also step on the scale and they'll learn and then over time they learn to kind of compare those variables right some people are obsessively um uh you know attached to a scale value but most people are always going to balance that with subjective assessment uh, as well and so having the two is really useful because again if nothing else you learn over time how reliable objective measures are. And uh, I'll just say one other thing and then and get into some specifics. There's some uh, really nice data from my colleague, Ali Crum, Aliyah Crum, who's in the Department of Psychology at Stanford, does um, terrific work on mindsets, not just growth mindsets, but how belief affects, not just placebo effects, but how belief affects impact physiology. And uh, she was a guest on the podcast and uh, we hope to have her back again. And we got into a discussion about sleep tracking. And so for instance, people who look first at their sleep score, we know that that sleep score strongly biases how alert or tired they feel throughout the day. Whereas if they wake up and take note of how rested they feel and then look at their sleep score, then 
it can change not the direction of the effect, but how strongly that sleep score impacts how they feel. So in other words, if you wake up and the first thing you do is look at your sleep score and it says you didn't sleep very well, it's more likely that you're going to feel tired throughout the day. That's not a placebo effect, it's a belief effect. It's an important distinction, we can get into it later. However, if you wake up and learn to subjectively assess how well rested you feel and then look at your sleep score, you're going to trust the sleep score less than your subjective measure. Okay, hmm. so this is important and it's something that's not often discussed by um, the sleep trackers and I don't have anything against sleep trackers. In fact, we use whoop in our experiments uh, at Stanford. Uh, I use a whoop. Um, and it's very interesting. It provides interesting data, as does Aura. And, and now some of the mattresses and mattress covers can also assess sleep scores and we can talk about which ones are more valuable. But I think the first thing to do every day when you wake up is to come up with uh, two values, you certainly want to write down when you wake up. Now, this might seem like a trivial thing, but are you waking up at a consistent time or not? This is going to change across the year for some people. If you wake up and fall back asleep, put the time in which you actually get out of bed. And this could be true whether or not you wake up by alarm clock or you wake up without an alarm clock. I know nowadays there's a lot of uh, push to wake up without an alarm clock. Many people cannot do that, unfortunately. Uh, we would all love to just sleep until we naturally wake up. But in any case, write down the time in which you wake up because that wake up time serves as a very powerful benchmark. Let's say that one day you wake up at 6.50 a.m., next day 7 a.m., next day 7.10, then 6.50. Let's just say your average wake up time is 7 a.m. And here I'm talking about when you get out of bed by alarm or not by alarm. Okay, you're getting up at on average at 7 a.m. We know that your temperature minimum, meaning the lowest temperature that your body is going to be at across the 24 hour cycle occurs approximately two hours to that average wake up time. So let's say you typically wake up around seven. And again, I'm gonna say this again and again, but people I'm sure are gonna ask by alarm or not by alarm, what time you get up and start moving about your day, subtract two hours from that. And that's your temperature minimum. It's not a perfect measurement, but in the absence of taking you into the laboratory at Stanford and measuring it by thermocouple or something, we, we are going to get a good guess that at 5 a.m. that's your temperature minimum. If you wake up at 8 a.m., then it was 6 a.m. was your temperature minimum. And that temperature minimum is a time of day, and it serves as an important metric because we know, for instance, that if you want to shift your clock for sake of travel or sake of getting up earlier to exercise or changing your to bedtime and your sleepy time in the evening, we can do that very reliably by exposing you to light for even just three minutes, artificial light or bright sunlight for three minutes, either prior to or after that temperature minimum. I'll return to that later. But this is a zero cost measure, right? You don't need a sleep tracker. All you need to know is when you wake up on average and then subtract two hours from that. How much data should you collect? Well, I don't want to get into statistics here, but everybody who um, you know does a little bit of science or statistics knows that the best, let's say that you're waking up seven o'clock one day and nine o'clock, 9 a.m. the next day and you know 2 p.m. the next day. Well, that's a lot of variability. Most people won't do that, but the best way to reduce variability is to increase sample size, right? Fundamental rule of statistics. So how about this? Just write down what time you wake up typically for four to five days. That's about right. And then take the average. And for most people that will be, you know, somewhere between six and 8 a.m., I'm guessing for most people, subtract two hours from that. And that's your temperature minimum. So you don't have to fall asleep with a thermometer in your mouth. Please don't do that. 
we know that your temperature was probably lowest at 5 a.m. And we will return to why that temperature minimum is really valuable later. It also predicts when you will be most alert cognitively hmm. and when you will be most primed for physical exercise. But I'll just tell you right now in case one of your web connections drops off, there are three optimal times to exercise. I'm going to preface this by saying that the best time to exercise is any time of day, right? Because exercise is critical. We know that getting 150 and probably more like 180 to two hour, to 200, excuse me, minutes of cardiovascular exercise per week has dramatic positive effects on longevity. So 180 to 200 minutes of cardio, this would be zone two cardio, meaning you could hold a conversation, but if you work any harder at the cardio, you wouldn't be able to hold a conversation. So this is, that's a lot of cardio if you think about it, but that's where you start getting the big inflections in health metrics and longevity. This has been uh, described in a number of studies. Well, you want to try and get that no matter what, but if you want to try and optimize, right, you're really going for optimal focus and optimal physical energy, then your exercise will either be done within 30 minutes of waking, within or at the three hour mark after waking or 11 hours after waking. So let's say I wake up at 7 a.m. I can either push myself to go exercise within 30 minutes, start my exercise, or I can do it three hours later at 10 a.m. That's going to be a time in which I will perform optimally in terms of physical exertion or 11 hours later, okay? So at 6 p.m. Now, with that said, a number of people are going to say, well, I don't want, exercise isn't really my thing. I, you know, I have to go to work. I have to, you know, at 10 a.m. I have to be working and at 6 p.m. I have to deal with kids. Great. There's another way that you can leverage this wake up time and temperature minimum data that you're getting. Again, it's objective, but you're measuring it without any device whatsoever. How do you, what am I referring to? Let's say that you wake up consistently around 7 a.m. and you decide that you um, want to do some cognitive work. Maybe you're working on a book or you're working on something hard or you're finding it hard to focus. Your optimal fo cognitive focus will take place also at three hours or 11 hours after that wake up time. And there's a, a synergistic effect of exercise in the sense that let's say I wake up at 7 a.m. and I exercise at 10 a.m. But then the next day I wake up at 7 a.m. and I skip exercising and I do cognitive work at 10 a.m. The systems of the body are very predictive. And what will happen is right around 10 a.m., if I've been exercising at 10 a.m. pretty consistently on the so-called off days, that 10 a.m. block is going to be one in which I have a lot of energy and focus because there are a lot of predictive mechanisms that are in our nervous system that allow levels of norepinephrine and dopamine and all the relevant chemicals for focus are primed because it's the body and brain are sort of expecting exercise. So this is, these are ways that you can leverage what's called circadian health or circadian timing. Again, you're not... Uh, all the other things you might do, like drink caffeine or not drink caffeine or et cetera, all of those will come into play. But what we're talking about here is just a simple metric, your average wake up time that can inform a lot of things. And, it, and I'll go one step further, as long as we're on this topic. If your typical wake up time is 7 a.m. and your temperature minimum is 5 a.m., and let's say you're somebody who really is struggling to get up in the morning. Like, gosh, this is really tough. I'm not able to get up. I'm groggy. I'm having a hard time getting into, you know, it's winter or maybe just life is more stressful. I'm having a hard time leaning into the work week and 
feeling more tired. There are a lot of reasons why that could be the case, but here's a, a it's not, I don't like call, I don't like referring to hacks because hacks imply using a system for something that it wasn't intended for, right? We're talking about actually using the nervous system the way it was, the way it's constructed. These mechanisms exist in everybody. What can you do? Well, let's say you normally wake up at 7 a.m. and you're feeling groggy. What the next day and your each day, I should say, what should you do differently? Well, believe it or not, somewhat paradoxically, what you want to do is set your alarm for 6.30 a.m. and exercise, even if it's just 10 minutes of, of low-level cardiovascular exercise, could be jumping jacks, could be um, you know jogging in place if you don't have any equipment, could be skipping rope, anything very basic, even a walk outside, ideally, if you can, and do that for 10, maybe 15 minutes, 30 minutes in advance of your usual wake-up time. Within two days, your set, that 7 a.m. wake-up time will feel much more natural and easy. And this has to do with how you shift your circadian clock with exercise. There are a bunch of other things like getting light in your eyes, et cetera, that we could talk about and I talk a lot about on the podcast. But I'm going to stop there because I just want to make sure that everybody at some point know, that their, av know their average wake-up time and then subtract two hours from that because that temperature minimum tells you a lot about when you are going to be optimized for physical work and mental work. I'm not surprised that you started uh, with sleep um, since there's so many knock-on impacts to getting good sleep from memory consolidation to mood to insulin sensitivity and on. Um, it, it's funny. So I do wear a device. I wear an, an aura ring. And, and it's, it's funny what you say about the biology of belief. Um, I do have the habit uh, as a quasi quasi orthorexic <laughs> to check my um, to check my uh, app in the morning, and if it says ninety three or ninety five, and it gives me some sort of optimal score, I am then convinced <laughs> that I am well rested, and and that generally does set me off uh, on an energetic um, day. So um, I I know that you talk a lot about light and the importance specifically of getting blue light in the morning. And I wonder if you could unravel that a tiny bit, because I think you were you were hinting at this a little bit um, in, in your comments um, about the relationship between getting blue light in these particular ganglion receptors in the inferior part of your retina and the uh, and uh, the secretion uh, um, of particular kinds of hormones that might make working out or learning uh, uh, give those things a more optimal setting? Sure, yeah, this is an area very near and dear to my heart because uh, my lab um, is heavily focused on the visual system and one of my good friends, uh, Dr. David Burson at Brown University about 20 years ago discovered these neurons, nerve cells that reside in the eye that communicate with a brain area called the hypothalamus that sits above the roof of your mouth and these these cells are different than other cells in our eyes because most of the cells in our eyes are involved in detecting shapes and colors and motion, you know, for things that we consider vision. These cells are different. These cells have a fancy name, melanopsin, intrinsically photosensitive ganglion cells, blah, blah, blah. But that doesn't matter right now. You just need to know that you have these neurons. These neurons don't detect shape or form. What they detect is the presence of light and they care about how bright a light is the particular wavelengths or color actually turns out to be important. And we'll talk about that. 
And then they communicate to this brain area to signal a few things. They provide a wake-up signal to the brain, and then they also start a timer for the sleepy signal to kick in later. Now, brain areas don't really control behavior the way that you might think. They control lots of things in order to control behavior. So when I say a sleepy signal, what they do is they set off a timer that will eventually turn on the hormone melatonin to be released from your pineal gland, which will then make you sleepy. In the morning, if these cells are activated or any time of day they're activated, they trigger a different signal also at the same time to release cortisol and adrenaline into your bloodstream, which is healthy if it's done at the right time of day to make you feel more energized and alert and to activate your immune system. So these cells provide a really key signal to the brain and body about what's going on in the outside world. And if you think about it, how else would the cells of your body know what's going on in the outside world and how to coordinate their different processes if not for some signal about the outside world. And the dominant signal by which all the processes of our body are coordinated, our digestion, our mood, our ability to think, the timing of our sleep and wakefulness, the activation and inactivation of our, of our immune system, excuse me, is through light and time of day and time of year. So I'll try and make this as simple as possible, first by just describing the optimal protocol, and then I'll parse some of the mechanisms, because as some of you may know, I'm not known for being succinct. If I start talking about mechanisms, you know, people, I might put you to sleep. Like I always say, if nothing else, I'm going to cure insomnia, because uh, if I keep going, people eventually go to sleep. But here we go. You have these cells in your eye. These cells are sensitive to bright light. They don't know the difference between sunlight and artificial light. However, they respond best to sunlight and a particular type of sunlight. So when you wake up in the morning, here's the deal. If you wake up in the morning and the sun is not out yet because of time of year, location in the world, whatever, and you want to be awake, turn on as many bright artificial lights as you can tolerate. More blue light, better. Look at that screen. Turn on bright lights inside if you want to be awake. If you wake up and the sun is already out, get outside immediately. If you wake up and the sun is not out, turn on those bright artificial lights, but then get outside as soon as you can. Why would you want to do that? Well, these cells in your eye that turn on the waking up signals to your brain and set the timer for good sleep later that night and do all these other wonderful things respond best to what's called low solar angle sunlight. Low solar angle sunlight is when the sun is low in the sky, right? It's just fancy nerd speak for when the sun is low in the sky. And you'll notice something about the quality of light when the sun is low in the sky, which is that you will see contrast between yellow and blue. Take a picture with your phone the next time you go out to see the sun. This is true in the morning and it's true in the evening at sunset. When the sun is low in the sky, it's not just bright sunlight everywhere, hazy light. It's going to be yellow and blue contrast. And yellow-blue contrast is the optimal stimulus for the cells in the eye to then trigger the wake-up signal to the brain. Okay, these are recent data from David Burson's lab and from University of Washington. Incredible what this probably tells us, and I say probably because I don't know, I didn't design the system, is that color vision, the ability to detect yellows and blues and eventually reds, which we evolved to do, probably evolved first not to detect the colors of flowers and fruit, but probably to sense time of day. Because as you'll notice, as once the sun gets overhead, those yellow-blue contrasts are gone. Take a picture of the sun with your phone when it's directly overhead. They're gone. Now, here's the deal. If it's overcast outside when you wake up in the morning, you still need to get outside. In fact, you need to get outside longer if it's overcast. 
and many more photons, that is light energy, comes through overcast sky than you will ever get from artificial light. So here's the rule. Early in the day, you want to get as much bright light in your eyes as possible. And later in the evening, you want to get as little bright light in your eyes as possible. Early in the day, artificial lights help, but they won't really set the system. Sunlight is needed. You need really bright lights to set the system in motion. Later in the evening and nighttime, from about 10 p.m. to 4 a.m., unfortunately, even the smallest amount of bright light will disrupt the system. Okay, so there's an asymmetry. You need a lot of bright light in the morning and throughout the day, but especially in the morning and ideally from sunlight. How should you do this? Don't wear sunglasses when you go outside in the morning to get that sunlight. Do not wear sunglasses. Eyeglasses and contacts are absolutely fine, however, even if they have UV protection. Why? Well, first of all, eyeglasses and contact lenses focus light to the retinas and you want to be able to see. And the light from sunlight is so bright that it doesn't matter if you filter out some of those ultraviolet hues or wavelengths. Okay, so then people always ask, what is the practice? You have to face the sun. Well, ideally, you look at the sun, but you, of course, you don't stare at the sun. Never look at the sunlight or, or any light so bright that it's painful to look at. So you can blink. You can get indirect light. If you're standing under a shady cover, that's probably going to take you a little bit longer to activate this mechanism. Maybe instead of five to 10 minutes, it'll take you 15 minutes. Ideally, you get out for a walk and get that sunlight in your eyes. But again, don't stare. Don't force yourself to, to look at that light. This has an enormously powerful effect on your circadian biology and overall health and sleep, et cetera. One more point, don't try and get this sunlight through your windshield or through a window. It will take mm -hmm. 50 times longer. You'll be there all day. It won't work. It just won't work. And the reason it won't work is that windshields and windows filter out the relevant wavelengths. Now, if you have skylights in your home, if you're fortunate enough to have skylights, you might be able to get away with a little less of this each morning but most people don't have access to that. So what I recommend is getting five to 10 minutes of morning sunlight exposure as often as you can. And on cloudy days, extend that for, to 10 to 20 minutes. If it's pouring rain or snowing and you can't get out, then get stand under an overhang, do what you can. And if you miss a day, don't despair, but don't miss two days, okay? Because sometimes you'll miss a day due to travel, et cetera. Now, if you want to use artificial lights to enhance the wake-up signal to your brain and body, there's a very simple tool that is far less expensive than those daylight simulators that they sell, which is just get a ring light of the sort that, you know, kind of selfie-obsessed Instagrammers use. And that's plenty bright. And if you want to get objective measures, because here we are talking about objective measures, there's a great app. I have no, no relationship to the app, and it's free, called Light Meter. You can download that on Apple or Android. And just do be a scientist. You're going to point your phone at an artificial light at a certain distance, and you'll see how many lux, which is a measure of brightness, that gives off. Do that outside on a, on a cloudy day, and you'll see that it's far brighter outside than it would ever be inside. It just seems like it's brighter because the light from that artificial light is concentrated, whereas outside there's a lot of atmospheric scatter and so on. So get that sunlight every morning, and what you'll find is that you will tend to wake up more quickly you will find that during the day, mood and energy tend to be elevated. And then you will also find that about 16 hours after getting that light is when you will get sleepy. So if you get outside around 7 a.m., then you can expect that around 7 p.m. you're not going to be sleepy, but 
you know, starting around 10 or 11, you're going to start getting sleepy. And it's very important to avoid not all light. You don't have to be living like a, you know, like a cave fish or something, but you want to dim the lights as much as you can in your home environment. If you happen to go out to dinner or something, don't worry about it. But one thing that you can do to offset or at least partially offset the negative effects of bright light in your eyes at night is to also view low solar angle sunlight in the evening. The way the circadian system works is you have two oscillators, one which is a so-called morning oscillator that's registering when it's morning and the other one that registers when it's evening and those combine in order to set your overall patterns of wakefulness and sleep. So if you're somebody who's having trouble sleeping, believe it or not, you wanna get morning sunlight, but then you also wanna catch you don't have to see the sun set, but you want to catch some sunlight in the evening before the sun disappears. Now, I want to just say one more thing because I always get this question and somehow it, um, I, that tells me that I haven't succeeded in getting the message across clearly enough. You do not need to see the sun rise across the horizon or set beneath the horizon. That's wonderful if you can, but that's not what's required. Low solar angle sunlight means prior to being directly overhead. So for those of you that wake up at 10 a.m., you say, oh, gosh, should I still get outside? Is it going to screw me up to get sunlight during the day? No. Once the sun is more or less overhead, it's what's called the circadian dead zone. You can't shift your circadian clock with that light. However, that light will provide an additional kind of elevation in mood if there's some hormonal signals that are triggered by, day, by middle day light and still get that evening sunlight. Basically, what you're trying to do is give your system as many cues as possible to predict when to be alert and when to be asleep. And the best way I can think about this is, you know, if or to state this would be, rather than think about optimizing health as this thing of feeling spectacular always or sleeping spectacular always, optimal health is really about creating predictable patterns of energy and, and lack of energy so that you can work within those mm -hmm. patterns. And nobody's perfect, right? I just came back from a, a weekend in New York. I was out there with my sister for our birthdays. And, you know, I didn't get as much sunlight at certain times a day. My circadian clock was shifted, eating different foods. But the whole point is that you can then shift back into life more, more quickly. Or that when Monday rolls around, you can jolt yourself back into the work week as needed. So getting that morning sunlight signal, I would say is third in line of the three most important health practices any human being can do. And I should mention that even blind wow. people People who are pattern blind still have the cells that set the circadian clock. This was shown by Chuck Zeisler's lab at Harvard Med. So the number one things for, for great health are going to be sufficient duration and quality of sleep without question. Sleep is the, is the foundation of mental health, physical health, and performance without question. Second one would be physical exercise. We just know that based on tons and tons of data. And then the third most important health practice, in my opinion, is to get morning bright light, ideally from sunlight, in the ways that I described. You will see your sleep improve. In fact, getting morning sunlight can increase the total amount of deep sleep that you get by 45 minutes or more, which means that you may be able to get away with less sleep overall because the quality of your sleep is better. And it also leads to significant increases in hormones like cortisol and norepinephrine and dopamine. Again, cortisol being healthy if it shows up early in the day. As a last kind of uh, point, Cortisol is going to peak once every 24 hours, no matter what you do, at least once. You want that peak to come earlier in the day. It's associated with better mood, improved immune system function. If you don't get that sunlight in your eyes or bright light in your eyes for two or three days, 
that cortisol peak drifts out later in the day, and that's correlated yeah. with anxiety, depression, and insomnia. These are data from my colleague, David Spiegel's lab at, at Stanford. So you want to anchor that cortisol pulse to the early part of the day, and bright sunlight is the best way to do it. And you can reinforce that signal by combining things like a little bit of exercise. You can be 10 minutes outside skipping rope, getting sunlight, or walking, getting sunlight. It can be any number of different, you know, combining different protocols, if you will. It's so tempting to hover over the topic of sleep because there are so many different facets to it. Um, I, I highly recommend anyone um, who's interested really to do a deep dive here to to listen to Andrew's conversation with Matt Walker. It's uh, I think from August 2021 in the Huberman Lab, Lab podcast, um, but there's a, an excavation of this topic um, really without comparison there. And, and I know one of your various earliest episodes went quite deep into this topic as well. I do want to move on to some other metrics um, that uh, that are important kind of on a daily basis. Um, so a couple of the things that that I look at, Andrew, you know, also my um, my aura ring also, you know, gives me heart rate variability scores. Um, I also wear a continuous glucose monitor. So I'm monitoring sort of blood sugar levels uh, not minute by minute <laughs> per se, but, you know, I, I am interested in postprandial spikes or what I'm eating and how that, what the relationship between what I'm eating is with my blood sugar. Uh, I'm wondering, are those metrics that are important to you? And are there other ones that you look at on a daily basis? Yeah. So I've worn a continuous glucose monitor before, uh, levels was kind enough to let me try one. And, and that, was very informative. I don't wear it all the time, but it taught me a few things, for instance. Um, one, it taught me about some foods that for me really spiked my blood sugar and then dropped me lower. I'm somebody, I, I'm an omnivore folks, so I'll just come clean. I'm, I eat fruits and vegetables and I eat some quality, you know, organic meats and things like that. I, I have a pretty basic diet in that way. I try and eat non-processed foods. I discovered, for instance, that starchy foods for me, unless I consume them after high intensity exercise, tend to spike my blood sugar during the day, but not in the evening. So if I eat pastas and things, those tend to be in the evening, which actually for me are, is great because it facilitates sleep. It also allows me to wake up in the morning and exercise more or less fasted because of my glycogen is restored. So it taught me that, for instance. I also learned something of interesting um, and surprising. Maybe someone out there will, will know why before I even state why this happened, but uh, I'm big on sauna. I like using sauna. Um, and I like alternating sauna and cold. And I noticed that going in the sauna um, dramatically spiked my blood sugar. And you think, well, mm -hmm. spike your blood sugar. Yeah. Well, what it's doing actually is it's pulling water out of, uh, out of you, right? You're sweating a lot. And so the concentration of your blood sugar actually increases in the sauna. And so that was kind of interesting. And I always thought I'd get hungry after the cold, but you get hungry after the sauna. And so, it's just, so there's a big spike in blood sugar and then a crash. I didn't know that. I still do the sauna, but I take that into account. Um, so that was interesting. I also learned, for instance, that, you know, I, I used to be not obsessed with, but I used to try and eat very soon after exercising because I assumed that my blood sugar would crash if I didn't. But I learned, for instance, that if I exercise, and it provided a hydrate and I get enough electrolytes after I, I train, 
that I can go about two hours before my blood sugar really starts to take a dive. So that was helpful because it gave me a little bit more of a buffer. Sometimes I'll finish exercise, I'll shower and I'll drop right into work. And I, I now know that I have a couple of hours before I can, before I really need to, to eat. Although I generally try and eat a little closer to after exercising, especially if I exercise in the morning. So it taught me a lot. Um, and then of course, it taught me what everybody learns, which is that when, you're, when your sleep is not good, your blood sugar becomes dysregulated. There's a beautiful paper um, that came out in, in one of the cell press journals this last year that showed for every stage of sleep, slow wave sleep, stage one, stage two, stage three, stage four sleep, and then REM sleep, rapid eye movement sleep, every stage of sleep is associated with a different pattern of metabolism. They did this by analyzing the breath of people while they slept. So believe it or not, for certain phases of your sleep, you are in a pure lipid metabolism or mostly lipid metabolism or pure ketogenic or mostly ketogenic metabolism. Every night, there's a retuning of your metabolic systems. And when you are sleep deprived in some way, those metabolic systems become discombobulated. And I think we need to stop looking at sleep and wakefulness as two separate states of being for being a human. Basically, every state of sleep sets the stage for the next stage of sleep. And every stage of sleep sets the stage for your waking state. So I like to think about my waking day as a reflection of my sleep night. And my sleep night, of course, is a reflection of my waking day. So we, you know, we exist in continuity. We don't have these breaks between asleep and awake. So um, glu glucose monitoring helped me understand that. There's some other measures that I take. I'm big on, as, as many people know, and this is not just because Inside Tracker sponsored this, I, I'm really big on doing blood work. I've been, um, I remember when I was in college, I was desperate to do blood work. I went to the doctor and I said, I really want to know my hormone levels, my lipid levels. And they would not do it. Back then, they just like, would not do it. Um, I think that, you know, provided it's within people's insurance plan or, or they can afford it, I think getting blood work done once a year is immensely valuable for the following reason. First of all, um, I'm now become a bit obsessed with ApoB based on a podcast we did with Dr. Peter Atia. Uh, yeah. You know, ApoB probably being one of the strongest indicators of heart health and cardiovascular health and longevity. Everyone should know their ApoB levels. Um, you should you probably know your resting pulse rate. You would love to know your LDL, your you know small LDL, HDL, LDL, HDL ratios, et cetera. But ApoB is really key as well. And then the other thing is, I can't find another way or think of another way to evaluate whether or not I'm sick or healthy, except in comparison to how I felt some time ago, right? It's all subjective relative to how we used to feel. So I get my blood work done pretty often about once every six months, but I think once a year for some people is going to be, um, going to be reasonable and feasible. And, um, and I think for younger people, it's especially important because you want to have a metric to compare to as, as you get older. And I can assure you that if you do the right things, I can assure you, because based on my own experience, and I'm no sort of genetic mutant, I don't recover quickly from exercise. I've never, you know, I didn't come from a family of super athletes or, or super geniuses. I think I'm sort of pretty, pretty average in, in, it, in large number of ways. Um, but I can tell you that if you do the right things, your numbers related to lipids and and hormones and, and ApoB, all of those can improve over time. So I, I, I think for most people getting blood work done is going to be really critical. The DNA tests, of course, are going to be important for some people, but the blood tests of, of hormones, metabolic factors, and lipids are, are obviously going to be the most essential. Now, in terms of, of more short-term measures of what, kind of a, how I'm doing um, or not doing, my ability to 
engage in 90 minute bouts of focused work, something of, you know, two or three of those a day, you know, three would be a lot, but I mean, two 90 minute bouts of really focused work. I'm not talking about email. I'm not talking about conversation, although sometimes conversations demand that, but you know, hard work, that's a big measure of cognitive function. Perhaps one of the best measures of cognitive function that we have. Do you have the self-discipline and capacity to turn off your phones, turn off your internet browser and do 45 minutes of solid work. Or if you want to do, a, you know, what's the bet, one of the best tests for ADHD or rather for focus and attention and for cognitive capacity? Sure, you could go do a bunch of biofeedback or you could take a Stroop test or you could do any number of those things. And if you're concerned about dementia or Alzheimer's or something like that, you could do that. How about this? Can you sit down and read 15 pages of a book, of a printed book, not a Kindle, but a printed book? I suppose you could do it on a Kindle, but a printed book for without basically interrupting yourself and going and doing something else. Can you do that? Mm -hmm. Right. Many people, including adults that would not be considered clinically diagnosed for ADHD, cannot do that anymore. And so, you know, that's a, that's an excellent cognitive test. Now, of course, if the book is interesting, it's going to be far easier. <laughs> um, but can you do that? You know, give yourself a test every once in a while. You'll also benefit from the actual practice, right? Whereas if you take a Stroop task, Stroop task is if I give you a bunch of cards that are different colors with different numbers and letters, and I say, read me the letters, and I do them very fast. You A, B, C, Z, wait. And okay, now I say, tell me the colors. And now you have to suppress the impulse to say the numbers of the letters. Seems easy, right? But it's actually quite a quite hard when it's going fast. You're not going to learn anything during the Stroop task except your performance on the Stroop task. The cognitive task that I just told you, or the task that relates to your ability to focus, is a very objective measure. How many moments did, you know were there where you felt like you were in excruciating pain and had to scruff yourself and refocus back on reading? Again, it will be dictated in part by how interesting the thing that you're reading is. But try and read 10 pages of a book. Right. That's a great test of your cognitive ability and your focus ability, focus ability. And now with the understanding that everybody who tries to focus experiences bouts where they are defocused. Right. If you find it, oh, you looked away from the book for for a few seconds or you got frustrated with yourself. Does that mean there's something wrong with your cognitive function? No. So, I, you know, it's it's amazing when we talk about. Objective measures of cognition, people think they need to go and do some you know fancy tests. Uh, you don't need mm -hmm. to do that, but you should pick uh, some text that you read and re not text messages and read that text. See if you can get 10 pages, maybe a chapter, challenge yourself to a chapter and know this at the moments where you are feeling like, gosh, this is really hard. I haven't done this in a while. And this is really boring and really hard. Those are actually the moments where the neural circuits for folks are changing to allow you to focus better the next time. Again, the moments of frustration where you feel you have to refocus yourself, deliberately interrupting your own thought patterns or the moments in which the neural circuitry is being triggered to change for the better. And if you think about it, why else would neural circuitry change this process we call neuroplasticity if it could do everything that you try and do naturally? There's no reason to change, right? So those frustration points are actually uh, suggestive of positive change in your system. And so pretty soon what you'll find, if you do this for three days in a row, this is what the data say, if you read 10 pages a day for three days in a row, forcing yourself to not get on the computer or phone or succumb to distraction, you do that for three days in a row, you will find that your cognitive, your ability to maintain focus for it will, will extend by about 25%, which is incredible.
right? Now you're talking about the ability to read 25% more, to engage in a cognitive task for 25% longer. There is no doubt that the context switching associated with scrolling social media is absolutely depleting our ability to perform focused cognitive tasks. The good news is you can restore that ability very easily. And here I'm not talking about nutrition, supplementation, sleep, et cetera. One thing you will notice, however, is that if you are not well-rested, that 10 pages of a book or one chapter of a, of a book becomes much, much even excruciatingly harder. Hmm. Yeah, you have a uh, fantastic episode on learning and, and different protocols that you can adopt um, to create these uh, settings, optimal settings for learning. I think you refer to them as ultradian cycles, which are kind of these 90 minute cycles. We have the circadian, which is about a day. And then we have these ultradian cycles, which are 90 minutes. And you talk about a variety of different protocols that we can adopt to essentially, I don't want to use the word hack, but to, uh, to work with our autonomic nervous system such that we can produce the hormones and neurotransmitters that find this Goldilocks zone between alertness and focus, which are needed for that learning experience, and then pairing them with, uh, with a, a level of persistence and rest uh, to consolidate um, that learning and that memory. And, and I really encourage everyone to go and listen to that. If, if anyone's interested in learning how to play piano or, or learning a new language in, in middle age, um, like I did. Uh, I found that to be incredibly uh, helpful. Um, so, you know, we have these daily metrics, some of which, you know, we've discussed, um, like sleep, um, you know, your my, my Apple Watch, for example, has like an oximeter on it, I can, you know, access my heart rate, I can also just access my heart rate by by putting my fingers on my uh, on my neck, so you don't need a fancy device um, for that. There's other metrics like uh, waist to hip ratio, um, blood pressure. Uh, uh, what was the one I was reading about? Grip, um, basically like grip strength, which I found to be really interesting and seems to be quite uh, indicative of of, of healthy aging uh, or sarcopenia. Are there any other daily? ones that you feel are key and then we can move into some of the more you know once a year or once in a lifetime kind of tests yeah let's talk about some of the ones that that you can do at any time as as often as daily or even multiple times per day that are objective that are very low cost to zero cost in some cases they're truly zero cost uh, and that help us better understand how our nervous system is functioning you mentioned the autonomic nervous system. You know, we have a nervous system that includes brain, spinal cord, et cetera. And a component of that whole system is called the autonomic nervous system. It's a bit of a misnomer because autonomic means automatic, but yeah. in reality, it's two systems. The naming here is terrible. Uh, thanks to the um, uh, physicians that named all this. You really have a vegetative nervous system that controls, for instance, your rate of digestion, and the things that, you know, the, the, the amount of gastric juice you release, et cetera, your heart rate at baseline while you sleep, you really can't control that stuff. But your autonomic nervous system is under your control. And the way to think about it is that you have cells and processes in your body that control a sort of a seesaw. So imagine a seesaw where at one end, when the seesaw is up, it puts you into states of high alertness. So this would be very, very alert. If it went any further, maybe that would be anxiety or panic. Okay. Then at the other end of the seesaw, it's calm, 
to the point where you might be you know, alert but calm, so the seesaw is flat, then maybe a little sleepy, asleep, coma, okay, if it's really tilted. So that seesaw is regulating our levels of alertness. People sometimes like to talk about fight or flight versus rest and digest, but that just reflects one or two you know, kind of positions of the seesaw, whereas in reality, it's, it's more of a, of a continuum of different positions of the seesaw. Okay, so that's very straightforward and intuitive, right? But the key thing to think about is that this seesaw has a hinge. In the middle, there's a hinge, and that hinge basically is like a little screw. And so the seesaw for some people is tightened at a place where they are always very, very anxious or tends to be tightened at a place where they are very, very exhausted, or is mm. tightened at a place where they are both exhausted and anxious, which can also happen, the sort of you know, tired and wired. One of the most valuable objective measures that you can have into how well your nervous system is under your control, as opposed to under the control of external events, is how tight that hinge is. Now, what's a measure of how tight that hinge is? It becomes a little bit abstract here, but we can put it to something very concrete. Work in my laboratory and in David Spiegel's laboratory is shown, and this is ongoing work, I should mention, that there's a, there's a feature within all of us that we can measure without any equipment except a stopwatch or a, or a second hands on your, on your watch called the carbon dioxide tolerance test. Okay, we are not the first to look at this. It's been used by free divers and by people in, um, different performance communities for a long time. Here's what the carbon, dioxide, uh, carbon dioxide tolerance test measures. It measures your ability to consciously control an extended exhale using brain to diaphragm control. Without going into a whole thing about breathing, I've talked a lot about on the podcast, you know, two inhales followed by an extended exhale is the fastest way we know to calm down. For instance, we'll talk about that, but objective measure of your control over your autonomic nervous system would be the following. You can do this you want to note what time of day you are doing this. So for instance, you could do this when you first wake up, or you could do this in the evening, if you're going to track it from day to day. But if I want to know how well I'm able to control my nervous system right now, here's what I can do. You can just simply slow, I'm talking, so this gets a little tough to do, but try this as, a, as I speak. I can't see, you guys are about postage stamp size compared to Jeff to me, so I can't see, so don't worry about looking silly. Right now, just start to just consciously slow your breathing. So you're going to just take maybe two or three breaths just through your nose. You don't have to do make them deep breaths or anything like that. Just kind of slow your breathing if you're moving about. Okay. Now here's what you're going to do. You're going, don't do it till I'm done saying this full sentence because otherwise you'll, you won't be able to do it correctly. You're going to take a big deep inhale like so. Don't do it yet. Fill your lungs with air, ideally through your nose, but if you can't do it through your nose, through your mouth. And then you're going to start a stopwatch and you're going to measure how long you can extend the exhale from lungs full to lungs empty, meaning you're going to draw that out as long as possible. And then you have to be honest. You, I know that all of you can sit with your lungs empty for some period of time, but you're stop that clock at the point where your lungs are empty. So don't cheat because you'd only be cheating yourself. This is not a competition. And here's where a lot of people get thrown off. This has nothing to do with physical fitness. Okay, so I'm going to start a stopwatch. I'll, I will do this. So don't start yet and don't practice it because you'll throw off your times. Okay, so you're going to take a big, deep inhale. So everyone take the biggest inhale you possibly can. Good, good, good. Fill your lungs, fill your lungs, fill your lungs. And now that your lungs are full, I'm going to start a stopwatch now. And you're going to slowly release that air. I don't care if you do it through your nose or through your mouth. Just try and control that exhale 
as long as possible. And I'm going to call out times and you take note of when your lungs are empty. I know you can sit with your lungs empty, but we are now at 15 seconds. I know you can sit with lungs empty, but that's not the point. I just want to see how long it takes before you reach lungs empty. 25 seconds. I'll take this to a minute. 30 seconds. Some of you may be lungs empty already. Someone disappeared from the thing. I hope. <laughs> okay, we're approaching 45 seconds. And then I'll call it again at 60 seconds. Okay, 60 seconds. Now, what you just measured was your carbon dioxide discard rate. And it has, it taps into three specific things. One is your conscious control over your diaphragm. The diaphragm is a skeletal muscle. It's unlike other organs. You can actually control this internal organ, right? You can't do that just with other organs, but you can do that with your diaphragm. It measures conscious control of the diaphragm. It measures your ability to, the extended exhale taps into a, a brain circuit, a particular brain area. And that, that turns out to be important. And that's an autonomic brain area. And then over time, yes, you can get better at this, but it's really a measure of, it's a real-time measure of how well you are managing your autonomic nervous system or are capable of managing your autonomic nervous system. If your carbon dioxide blow-off time is 20 seconds or less, we would consider that a kind of short CO2 blow-off time. Not bad, I didn't say bad. Between 25 seconds and 45 seconds, let's call that moderate. And then if you have a carbon dioxide blow-off time between 45 seconds or greater, that's a, that's a long carbon dioxide blow-off time. Now here's the deal. There will be times of day in which your CO2 discard rate is very long, and there will be times of day when your CO2 discard rate is very short. If you're very stressed or you've been speaking a lot, it will be very short. If you're very relaxed, it will be very long. I recommend measuring your carbon dioxide discard rate once in a while, but at the same time of day, maybe when you wake up in the morning is gonna be the best time to do it or before sleep. What you will start to see is essentially what sort of fatigue you've accumulated in your autonomic nervous system. And in particular, your ability to regulate your autonomic nervous system. So again, this is not a measure of how stressed you are. This is a measure of your ability to regulate your own stress, the tightness of that hinge, right? Mm -hmm. And the, so the way to think about this seesaw is that all day long, you are running back and forth on this seesaw, back and forth, back and forth, more alert, less alert, more alert, less alert. And then at night, what you need to do is kind of put your seesaw into the sleep mode. If that hinge is not under your control, that's why a lot of people have a hard time moving from wakefulness to sleep. And the best tool that I'm aware of to increase your carbon dioxide discard rate and to improve control over your nervous system in this way is this practice that I sort of talked about ad nauseum on the podcast, but again, it's a zero cost tool. So nothing to buy here or do it's it was well to do. Yes, but not to buy, which is non-sleep deep rest, which is a, sometimes people do yoga nidra, but that has intentions. There's a kind of mystical component. I'm not being disparaging of yoga nidra. I think that's wonderful, but there are pure scientifically oriented NSDRs. There's a new script that just came out on YouTube. You can just search my last name NSDR and it's from Virtusan. They've made this completely zero cost and it that done for 10 minutes a day, everyone, or even every once in a while, it taps into this ability 
to consciously control that tightness of the hinge. And what people find is in a very short amount of time, within just a couple of days of doing this, that they are better able to sense stress and control their stress level. And they start to automatically control their stress level during waking by adjusting their inhale exhale ratio. This is really interesting, right? It's like, we're not talking about going and doing a breath work practice. We're talking about a 10 minute protocol that gives you better subconscious access to your stress system and your autonomic system. And what I like about this and why I feel you know, comfortable talking about it so often is that again, it's completely zero cost. There's no commitment except the 10 minutes to do it. So you can use the carbon dioxide discard rate as a measure of your level of autonomic control. Some people like to use grip strength. I want to make sure I get to this as a measure of how well they've recovered from exercise. It's also a measure of longevity. You want to, again, do it at more or less the same time of day, but you can take an old, old fashioned scale, squeeze it and see how much force you can generate. And then you want to take that measurement again the following day and the following day. Typically, if your nervous system is recovered, in quote, air quotes, then your ability to generate, you know, this this has to do with you have motor neurons in your spinal cord that control grip and movement, but these you also have what are called upper motor neurons in your brain that consciously control the lower motor neurons as a hierarchical system. In any case, your ability to generate a certain amount of force at will at a given time of day tells you a lot about how well your nervous system is recovered. And typically, if that number is dropped off by about 20% or more, you're having a hard time engaging your nervous system in a deliberate way. Um, there are other measures too, of course, but again, that's a very, I wouldn't say zero cost because you need a scale of some sort, but it's certainly low, lowish cost compared to, for instance, going in and doing a bunch of, you know, biofeedback or uh, again, your ability to read 10 pages of a book, <laughs> but without um, getting up and doing something else, very inexpensive and beneficial at the same time, excellent measure of cognitive capacity. Um, your ability to do a long exhale, controlled exhale, uh, let's say, aim for 45 to 60 second carbon dioxide discard rate. If you're not able to get that consistently, then provide you haven't been running up a hill the moment before, then think about doing 10 minute NSDR, which has other benefits as well, in, improve sleep, et cetera. So what you, today we're talking about objective measures of health. And what you'll notice is they range everything from yearly blood test to get really under the hood to how well am I managing my nervous system? And the reason it's so important to have both ends of the spectrum covered is that, you know, many people think that they are anxious or they think they're not doing well, or they think, and you may not be feeling well subjectively, but many people take great comfort and in fact, improve their overall state of well-being, realizing, hey, you know, my carbon dioxide discard rate is actually pretty good. I'm managing my nervous system pretty well. You know, I'm, uh, you know, yes, I'm waking up twice in the middle of the night because I'm dealing with something, but I'm also falling back to sleep a couple times during the night. So I must be good at shifting out of that state as well. Again, you know, perfection isn't the goal. The goal is to over time to take better and better control over your nervous system. And again, anchoring to the circadian cycle, that morning light and really avoiding bright light in the evening, uh, excuse me, late at night. Anchoring to the circadian cycle is going to be vital. That really sets the foundation of how hard or how easy it's going to be to manage your nervous system and health and, and health practices at other times of day. Because all I have to do is sleep deprive you for a few nights, right? Keep you up all night for a few nights and you will completely fall apart in terms of your ability to read, to predict when you'll be alert, to manage. You know, There are some people that can overcome sleep deprivation like that, but most people understandably fall apart. 
So anchor your sleep, get the exercise that you need, get the morning sunlight that you need. Ideally, you're getting yearly blood work or twice a year blood work. I do recommend that if possible. I realize there are budgetary restrictions that people have, and I, I, I'm sensitive to that. Um, but in addition to that, measure your carbon dioxide discard rate a few times a week at the same time of day. Get a sense of how well you're managing. Do the 10-minute NSDR, I would say every day, and the best time to do it is any time, really. Um, that will absolutely, as with sunlight, improve your ability to regulate your nervous system, fall asleep easily, fall back asleep more easily, accelerates neuroplasticity. Do take a cognitive test every once in a while and read 10 pages without any, you know, without any internet, not on an electronic device, or if it is a Kindle, disconnect it, right? So these kinds of things might seem almost trivial, but then when you start thinking, okay, now we start bringing continuous glucose monitors or aura rings or whoops, or you're sleeping on a bed that has some movement tracker or sleep tracker, you're really starting to get into the icing on the cake. And you can, but more importantly, you can start to compare those kind of more higher tech, higher cost metrics with your subjective metrics. And you can gain a lot of understanding about how well you are functioning and start really directing the changes that you want to see in yourself. And I, I would say that without fail, the, the, just the core practices of, of, of sunlight exercise and, and some of the other things that we've talked about have an outsized effect and, and, and they tend to happen very, very quickly. A lot of people say, well, how quickly does, do these improvements occur? Usually within uh, you know, two to five days, you'll start to notice that you feel better throughout the day. You're sleeping better at night, uh, unless there's some you know, situational or, or unusual condition. Uh, I would say more than 85% of people report vast improvements. And we see this in, in laboratory data as well. Yeah, thank you, Andrew, so much. Uh, I wanna be mindful uh, of everybody's time here. Um, you know, there are so many daily metrics that, that we can look at. And then, you know, as we talked about on an annual or potentially biannual basis, you can uh, engage in these deeper dive tests. So for example, I recently got my microbiome tested. Uh, Andrew has an unbelievable episode on the gut brain connection. Uh, I believe that's from February this year. And in a follow-up conversation with Dr. Justin Sonnenberg, um, just really unbelievable if you suffer from any kind of mood disorders or depression. Um, I highly suggest that you uh, listen to those episodes and potentially that might propel you to get a microbiota test. There are a number of available that indicate kind of what different bacteria are present and how diverse they are in your gut. And as we're finding out more and more, our gut is so connected uh, to all of the systems of, of our physiology. And then of course, you know, um, you know, I've been getting my, my blood panels done, uh, twice a year, um, inside tracker makes it super easy for us. <laughs> um, they'll actually even send a phlebotomist to your house in some areas. So, um, I highly suggest that everybody check that out if, if it's within your budget. And then, you know, the last thing is, is just, you know, the once in a lifetime test, which is your DNA, uh, testing, obviously your underlying fixed nucleotide sequences never change. Um, and you know, we're not bound by our genes Our genes do not determine our fate, uh, as, uh, as we're discovering through these emerging, uh, studies of epigenetics and the microbiome and of course, neuroplasticity, et cetera, but they can indicate certain kinds of, uh, proclivities or what's called SNPs, uh, single 
uh, nucleotide polymorphisms, basically just mutations that, that people might have. Very famous one now is the BRCA mutation, which is associated uh, in, in some cases with breast cancer that, that Angelina Jolie um, made quite famous. Um, but there, you know, I, I just think as a closing comment, Andrew, I want to give you the, that opportunity. It's just we're on a new frontier where there is a there's a lot of agency that people have um, over their own health, and um, you know, it used to be, you know, we just got kind of one shot at it. We got a snapshot once a year uh, visiting our primary care physician, and uh, and that uh, terrain has has really really changed. Oh yeah, it's, it has changed, and I and I think I'm going to um, poach some of the the better um, quotes from smarter colleagues, smarter than I uh, am colleagues. You know, one of, one of our guests on the Human Lab podcast was a guy named Carl Dyseroth, who he's also been on Lex Friedman's podcast. He's an incredible bioengineer and psychiatrist, and one of the things that he said that really really hit home for me was, you know, if you think about a surgeon, the surgeon has the dissection tool of a scalpel and what are called rongeurs for removing skull and bone and um, and you think about a uh, a cardiologist and they can measure things like blood lipids and they can measure your EKG. You know when you talk about the nervous system, you know short of putting people into a brain scanner, the ways that we assess our own nervous system function up until now has largely been with language. Like, how are you feeling today? I feel good. Mm -hmm. I feel tired. Uh, I want to be more focused. I want to be in flow, right? I mean, this is just language. Like, let, the language is the dissection system, and it's incredibly crude. In fact, it's it's completely insufficient in every way, and it's not standardized in any way. I mean, we know the difference between depressed and and thrilled or delighted, but once you get into the the spectrum of of, of moods and of, of well being and how energetic. I mean, how energetic should should we feel, right? How much how much sleep should we want to have? How focused should we be? There are no standard measures for this. What we need to do, what we each and all need to do, is measure these within subject, within ourselves, and regardless of where we are, progress along the path to improvement, right? And the way to do that is using the tools and techniques that I talked about today. I feel comfortable saying that because frankly, I didn't discover them. I didn't design them. I always said, if anyone says that they designed something in nature, be very cautious, walk away or turn and run, right? I was not consulted at the design phase, right? These systems evolved. Uh, we're endowed with these from birth. The beauty of it is, is that we all have these cells and systems in our body naturally. We don't have to develop them. We can cultivate them and build them up, but we all have them. As I mentioned earlier, even people who are blind have these cells to set the circadian clock. And for people that don't even have eyes, and there are some individuals who fall into that category, there are yet other systems that compensate for that. So the, the key thing here is to really understand that language is important, but having some objective measures, carbon dioxide discard rate, what time you're waking up each day, um, you know, that temperature minimum. I, did, I should just briefly mention, because I said I would early on, I, I know we're going over, but that temperature minimum allows you to shift your circadian clock in very deliberate ways. If you want to wake up earlier or go to bed earlier, it's very simple. You want to start going to bed earlier, get some bright light in your eyes within the two hours between that temperature minimum and your normal wake up time. You will start going to bed earlier and waking up earlier. If you want to go to bed later and wake up later, Start, get some bright light in your eyes in the four hours before that temperature minimum. 
you think about it, sort of the equivalent of staying up very, very late. And then the next day you want to sleep sleep in, right? If your temperature minimum is 5 a.m. and you stay up until 3 a.m. one night, well, you're going to want to sleep in the next morning. So there, I have a post on Instagram that I can refer people to if they want to learn more about this. But track your wake-up time. Know your temperature minimum. Know your carbon dioxide discard rate. Test yourself on your ability to read 10 pages without interruption or refocusing yourself a minimum number of times. Um, get that 180 to 200 minutes of cardiovascular exercise. If you want to use metrics, and I do encourage people to get blood work done once a year, but if you want to use trackers, go for it. But I really, it, the, the one thing that we really learned during the pandemic, if nothing else, despite all the controversy, is that no magic ferry or package is going to arrive on our doorstep that's saying, here is the kit for health, right? This, we all need to take responsibility for our physical and our mental health. And we certainly should lean on supports, friends, you know, clergy, you know, loved ones of what to especially get us out of, of, of really tough spots. But no one can take care of your health for you. There is no pill or potion. There will never be a pill, potion, or injection that is going to resolve all the things that we're talking about. Never. The body and the nervous system are far too complex. No chip, no pill, no potion, no injection will ever accomplish that. The good news is the tools exist. And we are in a rapid progression of tools to measure and to adjust the function of our nervous system and our microbiome and the other aspects of our biology. It is all within reach. And it is indeed all within reach, regardless of budget. Because if you think about today's discussion, 95% of what we discussed were zero cost tools that just simply require a small amount of time and commitment. Yeah. And we didn't even touch on fasting, which will <laughs> obviously it's completely free. Um, and, and so perhaps we can cubby hold that for a future conversation. Would love to. Um, well, Andrew, thank you for all of uh, your work and your efforts really to democratize access to medical science and, and really empower people to take more agency uh, over their own health. You're making such a huge contribution uh, and you have my gratitude and I know a lot of other people's gratitude. So thank you so much. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Dr. Andrew Huberman. You can keep abreast of Andrew's work by tuning in to the Huberman Lab podcast. I cannot recommend it enough. Now, if you enjoy this show, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. If you're a regular listener, you have a sense for how much effort our team puts into the show's creation, and we really do our best to keep sponsors and ads to a minimum. So if you're looking for a way to support our efforts here at Commune, the best way is to subscribe. You'll access more than 100 courses featuring the world's top authors and thought leaders. You can check it out for free for 14 days at onecommune.com slash trial. Of course, feel free to reach out to me directly anytime at jeffk at onecommune.com. Lastly, I'd like to thank the folks that make this show possible week over week, including Jake Laub, Megan Stone, Violet Augustine, Alexa Pepperman, Ruby Foster, Emma Frett, Silvana Alcala, and Ryan Tillotson. That's all from the commune for this week. My name is Jeff Krasnow, and I am here for you. <laughs>